Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. Gard Saad. Why are men the majority of Ferrari owners? Why do women prefer tall men? What is evolutionary psychology and how does one apply biology in understanding consumer behaviour? Gard explores these issues and countless others. Dr. Saad is an evolutionary behavioural scientist at Concordia University in Montreal. He's the author of multiple titles, including The Consumer Instinct, What Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, Pornography and Gift Giving Reveal About Human Nature. I love that title. And he has appeared in The Economist, Forbes, Time Magazine, and has been profiled in The Wall Street Journal, amongst many others. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. I mentioned it just before we clip record. I think, um, yeah, this is going to be a fun one. It's, uh, it's, you've, you've done some absolutely fascinating studies, and they're just, yeah, some completely different range of ones, but they're, they're hilarious and amazing, so I'm, I'm really excited to jump into them. Um, and it's very much, it's clear, you, you, you clearly, you love what you do, don't you? I really do. You know, I, wake <laughs> up, I wake up every morning uh, like a kid in a candy store because you don't know what's coming that day, right? Mm. Uh, one day I might get an email from a lovely young guy like yourself inviting me on his show, and it's off we go to another adventure. So yeah, I, I truly love what I do. Yeah, you can tell. In, in, if you look at any of the, um, I'll, I'll link it up in the show notes. But um, if you head on over to like your YouTube page and check out some of the videos, it's it's clear that um, you've got this like this some insatiable curiosity it's you're like you're, you're you're fascinated it's like yeah like you said a kid in the candy shop you're you're very curious about just how how human beings just operate like what is driving our decisions what is motivating us and um yeah um, it's 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 amazing um i actually saw that you recently reposted a couple of videos from um back from 2011 on your page and so i can i've taken that as an excuse to re-delve some of those up so i hope you don't sure. mind Please, no problem. Because um, social scientists have historically argued that consumers are born with, I think, empty minds, um, and it's our environments that shape them into becoming the consumers that we eventually become. However, this is not entirely true, is it? I mean, they point to like the toy preferences as as their example for this, but that's not the whole picture, is it? Right. So historically, social scientists have, in a sense, defined themselves by the fact that they abdicate biology as being relevant to human behavior, right? Mm. So biology is relevant to explain the behavior of the salamander and the frog and the mosquito and the zebra. But what makes us human, according to them, is that we transcend our biology. So sure, you know, our genitalia is, quote, biological. But short of that, everything else is due to the fact that we are born with these tabula rasa minds that are subsequently shaped passively by the by various socialization forces which of course is just laughably false uh, and so what i argue and what most evolutionary psychologists argue contrary to what is typically assumed is that we're actually both right of course we are prone to socialization forces nobody rejects the fact that we are socialized but but of course this comes with a bedrock of biological imperatives and socialization itself doesn't happen as something that is contrary to biology. Socialization happens in a way to uh, support biological imperatives, right? So, for example, if religious narratives socialize women into being sexually chaste, it's not by coincidence, right? It's not arbitrary socialization. There are very clear evolutionary reasons 
why we would expect socialization to be of that form. And so all I basically argue in my work is that as consumers, we are both born and made. Okay. And um, I, I reference. I mean, I mentioned that a couple of studies at the beginning, and uh, I'm going to bring up a few of those. Like, th there was one study by a British psychologist about cars as uh, sexual signals, like the Ford Fiesta versus the Bentley. W what did that study show? Right. So if you take the same guy and you put him in those two cars and then you take the same woman and you put them in those two cars and you do opposite sex rating. So in other words, women rate the guy in one of those two cars and men rate the, the same the girl in one of those two cars. The manipulation of the car doesn't do anything in terms of how men judge the woman. In other words, she doesn't suddenly become more physically attractive because she's in the Bentley. On the other hand, as we would expect in folk psychology and as we would predict from evolutionary psychology, the same man, when he is either associated with a low status object or a high status one, magically becomes more handsome and more physically attractive, right? The question is not whether he's more attractive as a prospective mate in general. It's specifically that he actually becomes physically more attractive, which objectively can't be the case, but somehow there is a transfer, there's a halo effect when I drive the Bentley. Okay, so if, if the... Uh... I guess if 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 the, if the men are like me listening to that kind of thinking, oh look how good we are that you know that we we didn't change our opinions. Actually, there's 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 plenty of studies coming up that you know which which show that actually we're just as bad. So there was there was I think one of your graduate students um, came up to you didn't he and said um, I'd love to get involved and help you out in some studies. You know, I'm I'm super excited. Like where can I go and you gave him the opportunity to spend a month researching porn sites all in the name of science. What, right. what, did, that, what did that study show? I just mentioned that actually as, as part of a talk that I gave in uh, LA. I just returned from LA. So this his was eyes a, beamed. He couldn't believe right. his luck. This was an undergraduate student who had just taken my uh, consumer behavior course and came up to me, as you correctly said, and just wanted to just you know serve as a research assistant for part of the summer. And at the time, I didn't have any research funds available. Uh, I do now. And so I said, look, um, you know, if you work with me, it'll have to, you know, I, I can't pay you. And he said, I, I don't care. I just want to hang out, learn with you, you know, from you and so on. And so, as you said, I, I gave him the task of uh, surfing uh, online uh, porn sites. But specifically what I was asking him to do is go to places where female escorts advertise themselves uh, and find as many countries where this is happening, you know, portals from as many countries as possible. And I specifically wanted him to simply code their advertised morphological measurements, right? So typically when a woman is advertising herself, she says, my name is Anna, uh, here's my height, here's my weight, uh, here is my, uh, my waist, my hips, right? And so I was specifically interested in the waist to hip ratio because we know from evolutionary psychology that there are certain physical traits that both men and women find attractive in the opposite sex. And there are evolutionary reasons for those preferences. Those preferences are not due to Cosmopolitan and Elle magazine and Hollywood images. Those preferences exist for the same reasons that other species also exhibit sex-specific preferences when they're choosing their mates, right? This is exactly what we would expect. And so in, the, in this particular case, we know that men prefer uh, the hourglass figure, and there are some very compelling reasons why, evolutionarily speaking, they would prefer this figure. And so this student in question collected data from 48 different countries. You know, if, if you had to do this prior to the internet, 
it would have taken you forever to do it. And I think, I, don't, I can't remember exactly how long it took him, you know, maybe two weeks. I don't remember the exact amount, but, you know, in a few weeks, somewhere between, you know, a couple of days to two weeks or around there, he was able to code data from 48 countries. And then the final average was 0.72, meaning the waist to hip ratio was 0.72. And that's exactly what you would expect. The, the range should be between 0.68 to 0.72. And so this makes it very difficult for the people who argue that it's all due to socialization to do so because I'm specifically collecting data from such a extraordinarily broad range of cultures that it would be quite extraordinarily coincidental that they've all been socialized to prefer the exact same body shape. So there you have it. And so, okay, so another one, there was like romance novels I read another one like all around the world and you know predominantly by women and these books whether you're talking about you know england japan africa south america there's a male archetype or the hero in the romance model in romance novels and they're almost identical aren't they regardless of country regardless of any of these things the male archetype is almost like a carbon copy around the world and is this the same concept but for but for so we're talking about the hourglass for for women. This is like the the male version that what women look for in men. This what is this archetype? Right. So you know if if you if you looked at that archetype of sort of the male hero, it would be as though it's the it's either the exact same writer who's responsible for writing all of these romance novels around the world, or somebody has done some cut and pasting and plagiarized the exact same male archetype. Or an alternative possibility is that given the fact that it is women who consume this particular genre, who read this genre, then we would, and it's a form of escapism, many times it's a form of, you know, sexual fantasies, uh, then what you would expect is that the writers of this genre would cater precisely to women's fantasies. So what would that be? Uh, the male hero in the romance novels is never you know, a pear-shaped, nasal-voiced, apathetic, uh, you know, socially submissive guy, you know, who sucks his thumb, goes into a fetal position and cries while listening to Taylor Swift music. He is a guy who is tall. He is a reckless risk-taker, but who could only be tamed by the love of this one good woman. He's got a six-pack and he wrestles alligators on them. He is a prince and a neurosurgeon, and his dad is a venture capitalist. So it's basically hitting every single one of the sex-specific preferences that men, women think of when they are thinking of their ideal male. And so more generally, what I argue in several of my books and in some of my other works is that we could look at cultural products of which romance novels are one, pornography is another, song lyrics are another. We could look at the contents of cultural products mm. uh, and because these serve as fossils of the human mind, right? The human mind does not fossilize, it's organic, but what does fossilize is a 3,000-year-old play that was written in ancient Greece, but that in a completely different era by completely different culture, yet we could read that poem or that literary genre and completely understand what the author of that particular piece was thinking. Because the universal themes of literature are exactly those that we would expect to be relevant from an evolutionary perspective. It's sibling rivalry, it's parent-child uh, conflict, it's uh, sexual uh, you know, desire, it's paternity uncertainty, it's social status, 
And so you basically have six or seven underlying themes that drive much of movie plots and, you know, television plots and song lyrics. And so what I basically argue is that if you really want to understand the evolution of the human mind, study the cultural products that human minds create and you really understand what tickles our fancy. And so these are sort of, yeah, like snapshots in time, be it 3000 years ago. And yeah, these are the these are the motivators that drive all our decision making. This is where it's grounded from. Exactly right. And and what's incredible is that, you know, you could have social scientists, whether they are cultural anthropologists or social psychologists, or, you know, I'm housed in the business school, you know, how could you study all of the things that we, we, we study and teach at the business school without ever once uttering the word biology or evolutionary theory, right? I mean, you know, as consumers, as employees, as employers, so irrespective of which hat we wear when we enter the business realm, we don't suddenly leave our biology at the door, right? I mean, our biology doesn't cease to matter when we are making investment trades or choosing which movie to watch or uh, fighting against our rival in terms of the organizational hierarchy, who's going to get the bigger office. All of these things is what biology is made of. And so what I've tried to do in my career in the past 20 years or so is to Darwinize specifically consumer behavior, but more generally the business sciences. I mean, I foresee a day in 10, 20 years where it would be unthinkable to study all of these topics without at least recognizing the biological forces that shape business realities. Because if the male archetype is, uh, is, is tool, I've got a problem. I'm, I'm not that tool. What do I, what do, I do? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not that tall either. Uh, <laughs> should, I, should, should, we just, should I just give up? I mean, well, the good yes, the good news is that uh, mate choice, to, to use fancy language, and then I'll explain what I mean. Mate choice is a multi-attribute process. So, what does that mean? Uh, typically, you are choosing the best package possible, certainly for long-term mates. In other words, while you may score low on height, you may make up for it by many other traits that are very desirable to. I don't. So that's. You've got nothing. You score poorly on everything. Okay, well, enjoy your life of celibacy. Then. <laughs> uh, no, so so basically, you know, you could be you could be short, but you could be very socially dominant. You could be short, and you could be a very powerful man, right? Uh, I tell the story uh, just to not speak about myself. Uh, uh, I tell a story of uh, one of my brothers who is a very, uh, he's very short, you know, probably less than five foot four, but he walks around as though he's six foot four. Uh, He's a guy who's, you know, he was a Olympic judo champion. I mean, not, he wasn't an Olympic champion. He, he was, he represented Lebanon in the Montreal Olympics, uh, but he didn't, he he didn't step on the medal podium. Uh, So he was a big judo champion. He's a guy who was very wealthy. He had Ferraris and Aston Martin and so on. And so when he would approach women, uh, he approached them with all of the cues of self-confidence that one could hope to to have. And so suddenly the fact that he might have been short uh, didn't matter as much. In other words, if a woman is faced between a tall guy who is boring, who is dense, who is, uh, you know, weak uh, versus a shorter guy who might possess all of those traits, then she might actually choose the shorter guy. So don't worry, despite the fact that <laughs> you're short, uh, you will find true love. Yay! Also, with, with things like evolution, when it's, so we're rooted in 
yeah, like, you know, passing on our genes, five of the fittest. Because evolution, it, you know, obviously, you know, it takes millions of years for changes to be made. Like, is it one thing like we can, you know, a lot of these things are maybe driving our decision making, maybe without us realizing it. But are some of them just completely uh, just futile now? Because if you were in like the savannah and, you know, you need to, you know, protect against a saber-toothed tiger. So you need that the strength, you know, the alpha male, whatever. Now that we're living, the society is so different. Is this just like evolution is just, you know, is got along, just it's going to just slowly catch up or how, yeah, how, what, right. I don't really yeah. know what exactly no, that's a good, is. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll answer it in, in two ways. Uh, so there's something called uh, the mismatch hypothesis uh, in evolutionary medicine, which basically looks at, I think it's the top nine killers in terms of what people die of. So colon cancer and heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and so on, uh, complications associated with these. And so if you look at the majority of these top killers, the argument from an evolutionary perspective is that they are due to a mismatch between the environment in which we've evolved. In other words, you and I today, we are a collection of vestiges, of evolutionary vestiges to a solution that was relevant in our evolutionary past. If today the environment changes very quickly, we, we don't adjust necessarily as, well, we don't adjust as quickly, right? And therefore my desire, for example, to eat and hoard high calorie foods while a perfectly adaptive penchant in the environment of caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty becomes a problem today when I have caloric certainty and caloric you know, plenty uh, availability. And therefore I become overweight because my gustatory preferences have not adjusted. So that's the sort of the general rubric under, under which I would answer that. But let me give you a, a shorter answer. Uh, we are, for example, men are very sexually territorial for a very simple reason. It's not because of ego and all this kind of nonsensical sort of social science explanation. It's really due to the fact that we've evolved the cognitive, behavioral, and affective system to thwart paternity uncertainty. In other words, you and I have ancestors that where the males of our ancestors really cared about their women not straying, because if the women strayed and we are a biparental species, then the males are going to be investing for a very long time in possible offspring who are not theirs, right? And therefore, we've evolved this very, very, uh, you know, a strong re response to the possibility of sexual infidelity on our from the part of our women. Now, you might argue, though, today we have DNA paternity testing, right? I could just go to a, you know, to a service and find out very easily if that child is mine or not. So maybe I should no longer be sexually territorial and sexually jealous. Of course, the reality is that my brain doesn't adjust because, you know, 20 years ago, we developed the technology for DNA paternity testing. My brain is a vestige of a very, very long evolutionary process. Give me the right selection environments for sexual territoriality to not be relevant for many, many years, and then I might no longer have those particular uh, mechanisms. That's fascinating. Compulsive buying is almost uh, a compulsive buying is almost exclusively a female affliction when right. pathological gambling is almost exclusively a male affliction. And this is true irrespective of culture. Why do you believe that is? Right. So in, in uh, my first book uh, and then in a subsequent, uh, so my first book was an academic book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, and then in a later trade book, which was meant for the masses, The, the Consuming Instinct, 
I, I dedicate a chapter in each of these two books for what I call dark side consumption, right? So typically, if you think that we are adaptive creatures, then you would think that the types of behaviors that we engage in are ones that hopefully result in uh, beneficial outcomes. But then why do we succumb to traps that result in deleterious outcomes, such as, and so the examples to expand the ones that you listed, pathological gambling, compulsive buying, pornographic addiction, eating disorders, excessive suntanning, uh, all of these uh, have deleterious consequences, yet they manifest themselves in extraordinarily sex-specific sex ways. Pornographic addictions, pathological gambling, excessive risk-taking, male-based, eating disorders, compulsive buying, uh, and are female-based. Now, why do these things happen? So I'll just first answer it generally, and then I can drill down to a specific mm -hmm. one. I argue that they are maladaptive misfirings of an otherwise adaptive process. So think about, for example, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, OCD uh, is, is when someone becomes stuck in an infinite loop of checking. So for example, if you suffer from germ contamination fear of OCD, you repeatedly wash your hands, but it becomes dysfunctional because you spend eight hours washing your hands, you no longer go to work, you no longer get out of the house, and the skin is falling off your hands because you're washing it with scalding hot water, right? Uh, if you go and check that the lock is, lock is closed of your back, back door in your house, but you do it one time or twice, that's fine. If you sit there for six hours rechecking it because you're stuck in an infinite loop, it's not good. But now, how do we explain that evolutionarily speaking? Well, to check, to scan the environment for environmental threats is perfectly adaptive. What, ha what happens though when, is when it becomes maladaptive, when it misfires. In this case, it becomes a hyperactive misfiring of this otherwise adaptive mechanism, right? Typically, if you and I face a threat, we tend to it. The flag goes up for the threat, we tend to it. The threat goes down because we, we saw that it's okay. And then we move on with our lives. What happens to the OCD sufferer is that the, the, the threat flag keeps going up and it's in an infinite loop. So now let's link it to uh, some of these manifestations. Take, for example, compulsive buying. Well, compulsive buying I predicted even before I delved into the literature to find out what it is that women compulsively buy, I knew that it wasn't a domain general affliction. What I mean by that is I knew that it wasn't that they were hoarding lawnmowers and hammers and toothpaste. Instead, I could predict, and then I found out to be true by looking at the literature, that they would probably be hoarding beautification products. Why? Because you have an adaptive mechanism, which is, as a woman, I need to beautify myself to be attractive on the mating market, but then it goes on hyper mode, it goes on hyperdrive, and therefore the compulsive buyer, the one who is psychiatrically afflicted with this disorder, starts hoarding endless beautification products. It's usually high heels, it's cosmetics, it's sexy clothes, right? So it's not as though it's just a general hoarding mechanism. She is specifically hoarding things that are related to mating. If we look at pathological gambling, or let's do, for example, pornographic addiction, right? Well, what happens to pornographic addiction? Men have evolved a visual system that very rapidly results in sexual arousal. And the specific thing that makes men aroused are visual uh, 
stimuli. And there, and, and there are very clear evolutionary reasons for that because men should try to take as many advantages as possible for any, from any short-term mating opportunities that arise, if only because that's a way that you increase your reproductive fitness, you spread your genes, so to speak. And therefore, what pornography does is it piggybacks on that process. So you mean I could go to a place called the internet and I could surf as many readily available, nubile, young, sexy women who are ready to, quote, mate with me. And so it becomes easy. So it's not as though men have evolved a gene for pornography, as people wrongly think. It's that pornography is piggybacking on a visual system that already exists to be easily triggered by stimuli and now pornography piggybacks on it. And so what I do in, in, in my books is I take each of these dark side consumption ads and I explain their biological roots. Fascinating. Because, yeah, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? When you're just looking at this, like, why is somebody going down to the casino and wasting all their money if, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's for that very reason that, you know, maybe in you know in, inside they know that status is important or money or that's kind of what's internally driving driving them so they're trying to get that but through a dark way exactly so it's for the exact same reason that bank robbers are exclusively or almost exclusively male right so men have many different strategies that are available for them to garner resources to achieve social status, right? So this is how evolutionary psychology is actually non-deterministic, right? The, the underlying mechanism must seek social status, must have resources, is what makes you and I similar. But the manner by which we instantiate that particular drive is very different. If I am a great soccer player, I might get all the women through that. If you are a great musician, you might get it through that and he might get it, right? And then there is some uh, low status unemployed, young male who has no other alternative other than succumb to the allure of pathological gambling because maybe this time I'll hit the, the big lottery and then I can show those girls uh, my Maserati. And so we would expect that demographically speaking, the types of pathological gamblers that are most likely to be within that demographic are young. Now, that doesn't mean that older rich men don't also gamble but in terms of pathological gambling the demographic is young unemployed low status males so it's almost like in their head it's like this is a fast track to what i want this is like this is a sort of you know people who get you get drawn to the sort of the get get rich quick schemes or stuff like that it's it's a fast track fascinating exactly and more generally i mean risk taking in general whether it be physical risk taking or in this case, we're talking about financial risk taking or crime related risk taking, right? I mean, what? I mean, you would think that's quite extraordinary that somebody finds it a good bet to go into a bank to rob the bank when they might face 30 years in prison, right? But the reality is that based on his mental calculus, that's a bet worth taking because if I'm able, I mean, obviously he's not thinking I'm gonna do this with the desire of hopefully ending up in federal prison for 30 sure. years, right? So, so if I can get away with it, which he probably overestimates the likelihood of him being able to get away with it and not get caught, and if I could score that $300,000 thing, boy, that's gonna set me nicely. Now, again, Sometimes you could consciously be thinking from an evolutionary perspective. Other times you may not know the evolutionary reasons, but it's still driving you nonetheless. So, for example, if we go to women behavior, I've done uh, another studies, set of studies with, the, with, my, with another one of my doctoral students where we looked at 
uh, how women beautify themselves across the menstrual cycle. And it turns out that they are most likely to beautify themselves or sexually signal uh, during the ovulatory phase when they are ovulating. Now, that doesn't mean that women consciously, you know, chart their ovulatory cycle and say, oh, gee, look, I'm ovulating. Let me dress with a miniskirt. But the mechanism is already built in, right? I feel more sexy during mid-cycle. I feel more desirable. I'm more open to meeting men and eliciting their attention. I feel less bloated and, and unattractive. And so the evolutionary mechanisms are working in the background. It doesn't necessarily mean when we explain something via evolution that it is a conscious process, right? I mean, we breathe. And that's an adaptation. And yet we don't sit there and say, oh, gee, I'm breathing because of the following evolutionary reasons. It just happens, right? Mm. It's interesting. I don't, I, when, you were, when you were describing both of those, a word that suddenly popped in my head, which is kind of like, whether you're looking at the female version or the male version, kind of, the kind of, I guess, both on both sides is connection, isn't it? Are they, they're both looking for that moment of connection whether it's you know through the reproduction but that moment of contact you know and we just go about it in different ways exactly and what evolutionary psychology allows you to do if we if we stick with sex differences is that it offers you a framework to precisely predict when we should expect no sex differences mm. for certain things there should be no differences across men and women for some things we should expect men to do some behavior for other things we expect women to do more that behavior. And so to navigate through these possibilities, that's exactly what evolutionary theory uh, offers us, right? Uh, our desire for a juicy burger is one that likely doesn't have a sex difference associated to it because the desire for hoarding calorically rich foods is something that both sexes would have equally faced. It is an adaptive problem that is as relevant uh, in the evolutionary history of both sexes within our species. On the other hand, when it comes to mating, there are many things that we are very similar on, but then there are many things that are unique to each of the two sexes. I'll give you a very quick, good example. This is not my own study. This is a study done by David Buss, a, one of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology and some of his colleagues. Uh, they wanted to look at sex differences when it comes to uh, triggers of uh, uh, jealousy, right? Uh, romantic jealousy. Uh, now, so if you if you t if you typically just assume, you know, which of or if you ask which of the two sexes is more sexually jealous, then you don't get a, a difference across the two sexes. But then if you drill down and say, but wait a minute, there might be different triggers that elicit jealousy. For example, it could be due to sexual infidelity, or it could be to emotional infidelity. Now I'm going to expect and predict a sex difference. And so here's what they did. They brought people in and then they obtained from them stress responses subsequent to the people being exposed to either a scenario of sexual infidelity of their partner or emotional infidelity. Sexual infidelity would be, uh, you know, your wife currently is having, uh, you know, passionate sex with the Greek gardener, okay? Uh, on the other hand, emotional infidelity would be, uh, you know, your partner uh, meets his or her colleague every day at work, they go for lunch, they really have formed a strong emotional bond, she laughs at his jokes, she really understands it, right? No sex, but a strong emotional uh, relationship is, is forming. So guess what the results show? When it comes to men, the greater elicitor of jealousy is sexual infidelity. When it comes to women, the greater elicitor of jealousy is emotional infidelity. Now, that doesn't mean that they are pleased 
about the thought of their men cheating on another woman. Of course, they're not very accepting of it, but they're even more unaccepting if a man forms a bond with another woman. Now, what is the evolutionary reason for that sex difference? For men, the greatest threat to their genetic interests is paternity uncertainty. Therefore, if you sleep with another man, you have violated a truly unforgivable uh, red line. On the other hand, for women, the greatest threats to their genetic interests is if their long-term partner removes his investment from the union. And the best predictor of that removal is not whether I have a meaningless sexual encounter with another woman one time only and I'll never see her again. It's if, if I form an emotional bond with another woman, that is a much greater predictor of my eventually leaving you. And that's why when men cheat on a woman and then they say very genuinely, maybe in a in a klutzy way, but they very genuinely say, she meant nothing to me, it was a one-time thing, they are genuinely signaling that there is no threat to our union. Now, that, that I'm not justifying that action, and of course, we also have moral restraint, we could, we could stop ourselves from doing it, but that's really what's happening. So this shows you how an evolutionary lens allowed us to identify a sex difference, which we wouldn't have been able to identify if we didn't come with that illuminating light of evolution god damn it this is good <laughs> <laughs> so if if so many of our choices that we think we're making freely are actually pretty predictable and is the result of millions of years of evolution then what can we do about it how can we take back control of the ship how can we have free will how can we you know go through life actually feel like we're actually driving it rather than just like oh like evolution's doing it to me right well look uh, just having the knowledge is always good right i mean knowing for example as a woman that uh, depending on where i am in my menstrual cycle will either make it easier or more difficult for me to stick to my diet is information worth having but of course the fact that we have that information as you so astutely pointed to doesn't necessarily mean that we're able to uh, not succumb to some of these Darwinian traps, right? Uh, so, for example, I know for a fact that being overweight, to, to, to put it personally, right? I mean, I used to be grossly underweight, very, very fit until about 25 years old. And then at that point, when I stopped being, you know, as, as athletic, uh, then I started putting on weight, as happens often to serious athletes. I, I used to be a soccer player. And so, I have known, it's not as though I'm unaware of the fact that being overweight is not good for your health, right? If you wanna to live to 95, you better be typically thinner rather than overweight, right? And yet, it's very, very hard to ever lose weight or at least to keep it off, right? Uh, so, you know, women, for example, are more aware of the consequences of sun exposure than men are, and yet they are the ones who suntan more than men, right? So. In an abstract sense, knowledge is power, but of course that doesn't mean that if we have that knowledge, we can implement it in our daily lives and not succumb to these Darwinian pulls. I mean, and, th and this is why moral philosophers and theologians have spoken about the seven deadly sins, right? Even though we don't necessarily, they, they didn't mean it in an evolutionary language, but if you look at the seven deadly sins, they perfectly map onto many of these Darwinian pulls, right? Lust, right? gluttony. I mean, those are so trivially easy to explain from an evolutionary perspective. They are deadly sins precisely because they're always calling us to succumb to their trap. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? 
a fulfilled life is a cerebral life. It's a life, I mean, that allows me to always learn, always uh, discover new intellectual landscapes. And it's also a life that allows me to form wonderful unions with other people. Uh, we are a social species. Ultimately, when I go into my cave and I work for a very long time, and it's very rewarding to be in my little cave, I always need to come out and then interact with other people. I get uh, invigorated by being able to chat with other people as I am doing now with you. And so both catering to my social self and to my cerebral self, if I could meet those two, I'm fulfilled. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that have a big what, positive impact on their lives? What I missed the start of the question. So if you had to give like one thing or one action point that our audience can start doing today that would have a big impact on their life, what, what, would, you, what would you say oh, to them? Oh, right. Uh, so life advice, uh, I would say... It's going to sound cliche, but it really isn't. Obviously, as a professor, I believe this. Uh, lifelong learning. In other words, if you can go to university and pursue your education formally, that's wonderful. But you don't have to, right? You could watch YouTube uh, lectures. You could buy books. Uh, the, per the pursuit of the infinite knowledge that's out there is uh, truly empowering. It's truly invigorating. And uh, spend less time watching uh, music videos and more time titillating that big brain organ of yours. I totally agree. Like, I, I loved my time at school. I had a wonderful time at university, but I was kind of just going through the motions of like, of like the, the education there. And I, kind of, I have only recently sort of fallen in love with learning after university when suddenly it was just like, suddenly like reading books and TED Talks. And it's been, yeah, I, I, totally, I totally back up what you just said. Last but not oh, least, how can people find out more about you, your work? Where can we send them? Right. Right. So I have a YouTube channel called The, the Sad Truth. It's a play on S-A-D, but my last name is S-A-A-D, right? So The Sad Truth, it's easy to find. So you could either do a search on that or uh, just do my name, Gad Sad. Uh, I also, you could follow me on Twitter at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. And I also have a public Facebook page. I don't remember the exact URL, but I should be easy to find. This has been absolutely fascinating. I've just, yeah, it was... I was learning those studies and it just, yeah, just absolutely fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for saying yes. Thank you for imparting all your knowledge and wisdom on us. And yeah, it's been, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers.